Hey guys, thank you for checking out A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, a podcast where I ferret through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and my ever-diminishing brain of about 500 remaining brain cells, and I take a light-hearted, laid-back, positive fanboy's look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless set theme every episode. I choose from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun and a warning that there's low-level humour, high-level swearing and hopefully medium-level entertainment for your ear holes. As a lot of people do like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think that I've missed something in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at recyclebin at a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast forward slash go good self cockgoblin.com and I'll get back to you. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me up and follow the podcast on Instagram, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast, and you can check out the website, a rock and roll rabbit hole.com. There's a bunch of good stuff over there. Please rate, review, subscribe, share, all that sort of shit if you're digging the podcast. Thanks again. Apologies in advance. And here goes. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. How's it going? Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you're all doing pretty good. This episode will be a little bit different to most of the other episodes I've done. And if it's fun for me, I may do a few more of these around other more normal episodes. I read a lot of lyric sheets, do a heap of internet research on rock music when putting the podcast together. And I realise there's a heap of songs that mention words or historical people or events that I actually have no idea about. So in this episode, I will hunt down some songs that I love and know very well. And I hope this doesn't drift too much into a history podcast. But here's Stuff I Don't Know, Volume 1, and here he goes. Now, I don't claim to be an A student, but I'm trying to be. So let's start with a monster song from 1977 that has two things in it that I don't know. It's a US number one. It won a Grammy for Record of the Year. It's ranked number 49 on Rolling Stone's silly 500 greatest songs of all time list. And here's the first thing I didn't know. Here's what guitarist Don Felder said about the line, warm smell of Kalitas. Kalitas is a plant that grows in the desert that blooms at night and it has this kind of pungent, almost funky smell. Don Henley came up with a lot of the lyrics for that song. He came up with Kalitas. How can I do an interview here and not touch on the fact that you co-wrote one of the most legendary rock songs in history, Hotel California. What is it about that song that has made it so successful? Well, if I knew that formula, I could repeat it. You know, it's like a recipe. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think there is a repeating recipe in that song. I think it's a unique combination of the basic chord progression from the demo that I wrote, uh, which was the kind of the start of that whole song idea. 
Uh, and Don Henley and Glenn Fry, especially Don, wrote some just brilliant lyrics. Don, as a lyricist, writes these little postcard pictures, and he throws you a picture on a dark desert highway. You can see that. Cool wind in my hair, you can feel it. The warm smell of Kalitas, you can smell it. You know, he's, he's got a brilliant way of writing these little picture postcards lyrically that takes you up to a place where when he sees the chorus, then you're like, it all makes sense, you know. Um, so I think it was a special combination of Don singing, a really beautiful vocal performance, his lyrics, the music that we started off with, uh, the chord progression that I wrote for the song, and uh, the incredible guitar stuff that Joe and I did at the very end of it. All of those elements together in one song. As a matter of fact, when we finished that record, I remember we were in the studio and the record company had been banging on the door, wanting to get that record done and out. They wanted it, wanted it, wanted it. So finally we had a playback party for them and everything was mixed and we had a bunch of record executives down. Uh, and we played it and when Hotel California played back, Don turned around and said, that's going to be our next single. And in 1975, AM radio had a specific formula for what it would play. It had to be three to three minutes and 30 seconds long. From needle drop to the singer singing could not be longer than 30 seconds. It had to be an up-tempo like rock or something or kind of a wet, mushy ballad. Uh, and that was pretty much the formula. If you look at that, Hotel California is six and a half minutes long. It's almost a minute before Don starts singing. That introduction is long. It stops in the middle. The drums and bass just stop in the middle. Then it's got a two-minute solo on the very end. It's just the absolute wrong format for AM radio. So when Don said that, I said, Don, I don't, I don't think that's the right song to come out of the shoot with. You know, it's the wrong format. Maybe FM would be perfect, but not AM. He said, nope. That's going to be our, our single. And I'm so happy that he didn't listen to my suggestion that we don't put that song out as a Because same. everybody played it, even though it was six and a half minutes. Right. Well, the, these jockeys loved it because they could put it on and they could go out and smoke a cigarette or go to the bathroom. <laughs> they had six and a half minute break to go out and come back into the studio. So they loved it. So I don't know if that was part of the reason it got played so much or not, but it, uh, it worked out quite well for us all. And the second thing that I didn't know in Hotel California is from this line. There she stood in the doorway, heard the mission bell. And this might explain a little bit better what a mission bell is. Well, the mission system started in the late 1700s. Um, the Spanish crown was trying to populate and settle California to make sure no other foreign powers would come in and try to poach this area. That race to claim the land sparked the idea of the missions. Following the king's orders, Franciscans gathered the Native American tribespeople, sometimes by force, to the mission sites to convert them to their religion and impose Spain's ways of life. And they then would become the vecinos, or what we would now call citizens or residents of California, giving this area a population base. 
ways. We're talking about a clash of life ways. A clash representing dark years and the histories of many of California's native tribes. And for our tribe, it, it's shameful what they do. Valentin Lopez is the chairman of the Amamutsun Tribal Band in Northern California. He says his ancestors faced the Spanish wave of colonization and missions San Juan Batista and Santa Cruz. That beautiful, um, peaceful history that they talk about of, of the loving priests and the, love, the way the Indians just enjoyed, you know, came to the missions voluntarily. You know, those are all lies. Fast forward to the late 1800s with California in the middle of a population boom and an identity crisis. And so in particular, California was trying to create kind of an image or, or a heritage for itself. And so they looked to what we what we call the Hispanic past. Professor Velasco Murillo explains that started a wave of innovation in architecture, street naming and more to attract people to the state and boost tourism. And so the bells come out of this movement of kind of trying trying to romanticize and nostalgize the Hispanic past. Throughout the years, several different groups put up the mission bells along El Camino Real, a road supposedly linking all of California's missions from San Diego to Sonoma County. Please stand with us as we go forward to get all symbols down. And that is where some tribes take issue. Well, those bells represent slavery, brutality. You know, we see them as, as um, equal to, to the Confederate the, the Confederate flag, the Confederate statue. On a dark desert highway, cool wind in my hair, warm smell of colitas, rising up through the air. Up ahead in the distance, I saw a shimmering light. My head grew heavy and my sight grew dim. I had to stop for the night. She stood in the doorway I heard the mission Let's get this shit out of the way early. There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs enough of that and i did zero research on this but i was wondering if the mission bell could be at the mission which is the meeting spot in this cracking no hit wonder song from 1995 that i absolutely love banditos by the refreshments
and the pistols, so I'll keep the pesos. Yeah, and that seems fair. And the Angels classic, No Secrets, has this line. In the morning, red in a shadow, she throws her dice and I ching. I have no idea what I Ching means, but it sounds like one of my wife's cousin's names. But the angels pronounce it I Ching, but it seems like it's pronounced E Ching, which is definitely one of my wife's cousins. I Ching is an Asian Chinese book. It literally means the book of change, as E stands for change, and Ching means script. It has no particular author, but the content of the I Ching has been added and developed by many other great Chinese people, one of those, as you all know, Confucius. Now, about 10,000 years ago, one of the Chinese legend and mythology figures, Fu Xi, created the very original symbol of the I Ching. Now, Fu Xi thought the beginning of the universe was completely boundless, stillness, and empty until two energy, or Qi, comes into existence. Now, you probably guess what they are. Yes, it's yin and yang. He then draw a broken line to represent yin and a solid line to represent yang. Everything on earth, including earth itself, was created by these two energies. Now by stacking these lines up, he discovered eight fundamental natural phenomena on earth, which are fire, water, wind, thunder, river, mountain, earth, and heaven. Putting them all together becomes a trigram, which you probably see somewhere in your life. Now at this point, you might be wondering why he was doing all these things. Well, of course, the main reason is for divination. But it was not for his own personal use. It was for everyone. It was for predicting the weather and locating the new area. Now, they were so important for us at that time because the language hasn't been invented and we knew nothing about our surroundings. Being able to forecast the weather and know where we are anytime gave us a sense of control. No wonder Chinese people still honor and worship Fu Xi until today.
subtle racism towards my wife, I am itching to get on to the next thing. It was during the Sunday afternoon showing of the film Women in Love that the first petrol bomb was thrown here into the prison amenities block. Almost as if this was the signal to riot, within a few minutes, petrol bombs were produced from a hidden cachet and hurled into the showers, the boiler house, the laundry, the workshops and the library. Then for the next four and a half hours, 250 prisoners, free within the cell blocks, launched into an indescribable orgy of destruction. The 200 guards, pelted with everything the incensed prisoners could lay their hands on, ran for their lives behind a barbed wire fence. Everything the prisoners had, their bedding, their clothes, shavers, bibles, musical instruments, the lavatories and basins, even the food from the kitchen was destroyed in a tornado of unleashed aggression. According to the guards, it was when the rioters attempted to set fire to the paint shops that the possibilities of a mass breakout became real. The guards opened fire and ten rioters were wounded. In every corner of the jail there was evidence of the desperation of men driven by fear and anger. This was a fire hose two prisoners trapped 80 feet up a tower had to slide down to escape a fire beneath them. Meanwhile, outside the jail, prison reformers had arrived from Sydney and were talking to the press. I don't want to get myself into a position where I'm going to try and justify what they've done because I'm not going to attempt to do that. Um, all I can say is that the men who did that, if it's as bad as they say, are pretty desperate men. Now, there must be a reason why they got so desperate. And I reckon it's that prison that made them so desperate and the system which controls it. Eventually, in the early hours of this morning, the prisoners were subdued enough to be loaded aboard buses and prison wagons for the convoy to Long Bay. Many were without their shirts. Why have you rioted? Why have you rioted? They are fascists. Did they? They shot us. They got everything to us. They got a they're going to bash as soon as we get to Long Bay. They're going to do anything to us. Listen, fellas, if you get bashed, ask, ask, ask for George Peterson. He's a member of George Parliament. Peterson. George Peterson. We'll get him out at Parramatta tomorrow. Right out. We'll be going to Long Bay. Right out. Well, he'll be there too. Right out. And you heard that story as Cold Chisel's song, Four Walls mentions the Bathurst riots, which I didn't know anything about, but now I do. Well, the calling time for exercise around the Majesty's Hotel and the middle holds a room up while I'm gone I never knew this luxury until my verdict fell Four walls Wash basin, prison bed. When the Bathurst riots ended, when the club the rebels found, and every congregation there was silence. You can hear the angels singing, Christmas comes around. For walls. Wash basin, prison bed.
prison chat and it's Beatles time. I love the word git and I only know one song that has this great word in it and it's a Beatles song. I'm so tired by the Beatles mentions a name that I have heard but I have no idea who Walter Raleigh was. So here's me learning in real time. Here we are at the Tower of London, close to the Bloody Tower, one of the most infamous prisons here at the Tower. It's housed uh, quite a number of uh, notable prisons, particularly the two boy princes and uh, the one we're going to be talking about today is uh, Salter Raleigh. He was a particular favourite of Queen Elizabeth I, um, so much so that uh, he was knighted, uh, given many rewards. Uh, He became captain of her guard, and also she gave him a charter to go and explore and colonise foreign uh, lands, particularly South America. Although Salter Raleigh was uh, Queen Elizabeth I's one of her favourites, he soon fell out of grace uh, by marrying the wrong woman, Elizabeth Frockmorton. And for a period of time, they were both in prison in the Bloody Tower. After the death of Queen Elizabeth I in 1603, Sir Walter Raleigh found himself out of favour again with the current monarch, which was James I, who, it would appear, wasn't a big fan of Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, And again, he had him imprisoned here, this time for a total of 13 years on grounds of treason. These rooms inside the Bloody Tower uh, were adapted for him and his family in the 1600s. Uh, The lower floor was where he had his study, where he wrote his famous novel, The History of the World. Uh, The upper floor was where the family lived. The courtyard outside the Bloody Tower is where Walter Raleigh experimented with plants, predominantly from the New World. And as it is the 400th anniversary of Walter Raleigh's death this year, we are recreating the gardens for our visitors. However, in 1616, uh, Walter Raleigh was released again um, to lead an expedition into South America to find the fabled city of gold known as El Dorado. Unfortunately, this expedition was a, was a failure uh, and defying the king's instructions, he attacked some Spanish. On his return to England, he was arrested again uh, and this time the death sentence was carried out on the 29th of October, 1618, in the Old Palace Yard at Westminster, 400 years ago. that I love that has a bunch of historical references in it that I do know also has a few that I don't and I obviously know what or who Jesus is and I knew the name Pilate but I didn't know who he was but my wife does love that movie series Pilate of the Caribbean 
Sorry, I'll try and stop with the Asian accent racism. I believe I can fry. On the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, there is an ancient secret as old as the birth of Christianity. Here in Caesarea, the majestic Roman port, a fatal determination changed history. The Roman governor based here, Pontius Pilate, was called on to decide the fate of Jesus of Nazareth. He would be a harsh judge. He was a brutal, uh, we hear about sort of massacres and, and uh, the bloodshed that uh, was uh, connected to the time that he had uh, the rule over uh, uh, Judea. He was not a nice person. We have come to the amphitheater in Caesarea with Dr. Shimon Gibson, an archaeologist who has spent more than 20 years conducting excavations in the Holy Land. Here in 1961, archaeologists discovered proof of Pilate's existence. You wouldn't really sort of think that at this spot, under this wooden stack, uh, this inscription was found, uh, a Latin inscription mentioning uh, Pontius Pilate. But this was one of those pivotal moments which changes everything because suddenly Pontius Pilate comes out of this written inscription. It's not just this figure in the Gospels. The Israel Museum here in Jerusalem is a treasure house of artifacts from the first century. To visit here as a religious pilgrim or an historian is to discover crucial evidence of the end of Jesus' life. The left side of the pilot stone was chiseled away to fit into the theater, but the inscription is clear. Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, Perfectus Judea, a stone thought to commemorate a lighthouse dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. It was a wow moment because first of all, this is the only physical object from the time of Pilate which has his name. The Gospel of Luke tells the story. Pilate was called to Jerusalem amid the uproar over the ministry of Jesus, considered a rebel leading a messianic movement. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asks in the scripture, and he answered them, you have said so. He probably thought of Jesus as a minor rebel, uh, of the kind of which he saw many in his governorship. The ornate ossuary next to the Pilate stone is thought to belong to Josephus Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and a pivotal figure in the trial of Jesus. Dr. Gibson's excavations next to the Tower of David Museum have uncovered further evidence of Pilate's time in Jerusalem. Based on the Gospels and writings from the period, the archaeologist imagines Pilate's judgment. He decides to make an example of Jesus and to have him crucified. And I don't think he would have uh, had a sleepless night about over it. There are no records of Pilate's last days or his burial place. History records that he was called back to Rome to account for the brutality of his rule. Pilate may have ended the life of Jesus, but for the faithful, this crucial episode marks just the beginning. Man. 
And I do find it hard to trust the accuracy of ancient history and religion gets tied up in that for my brain. But onwards we waffle with some devil chat. Sympathy for the Devil also mentions this person. Killed the Tsar and his ministers Anastasia screamed in vain Which is another historical name I had heard of but didn't really know the brutal story behind. Russia, 1917. An empire on the brink of collapse. Under the rule of Tsar Nicholas II, widespread poverty and famine sweep a war-torn union. Nicholas's incompetence in command of the world's largest army sees Russia's military death toll rise to the staggering figure of over two million, decimating national morale. The domestic outlook on his leadership is just as grim. Unrelenting in his quest for absolute power, Nicholas has little knowledge or care for civilian opinion. His unwillingness to give his people a voice ultimately weakens his iron grip on power. Nicholas is the 18th member of the Romanov family dynasty to lead Imperial Russia. His ancestors include Peter and Catherine the Great, who respectively transformed Russia into one of Europe's largest empires and led the state through its golden age. But after 300 years of succession, Nicholas's ineptitude, a world war, and societal unrest threatened to end the family streak. 16 years earlier, at the turn of the 20th century, Tsar Nicholas II's wife, Alexandra Feodorovna, becomes pregnant. The Tsar and Tsarina already have three daughters, and the family knows that a chance at a male heir to the throne is fleeting. To everyone's royal disappointment, Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaevna is born on June 18, 1901. Her Greek name evocatively translating to resurrection. Tsarina Feodorovna gives birth to a boy three years later, and Alexei Nikolaevich joins his four sisters in the Romanov family dynasty as the male heir. While Alexei may be the heir to the throne, young Anastasia steals the spotlight. Energetic and clever, her bright blue eyes twinkle with cunning and mischief. Members of the court instantly recognize this magnetism, saying she has the greatest personal charm of any child they had ever seen. But not everyone views the Duchess with such admiration. After a game in which Anastasia cheats, kicks, and scratches her way to victory, she earns the reputation by some of being nasty to the point of evil. Regardless of opinion, it's evident that Anastasia possesses an ability to finagle and persuade, skills that may eventually save her life. Nicholas and his wife raised their children simply, relative to the family's immense wealth. The children cleaned their own rooms and do their own needlework, selling their goods at charity events. With the hectic schedule of a royal family, the Tsarina relies heavily on the help of a Siberian faith healer, Grigory Rasputin. 
After becoming close with the Romanovs, Russian aristocrats accused Rasputin of yielding too much influence over the Tsar. On December 30th, 1917, the Russian nobles lace his wine with cyanide, shoot him at close range, and throw him into a freezing river. The brutal murder of Rasputin is the spark that leads to the revolution. Just three months later, protests and civil demonstrations force Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate the throne, ending 300 years of Romanov imperial rule and leaving Russia open to a new form of government. With the long-established Tsar overthrown by peaceful protest, Russia readies itself for a more democratic and just governing body. A provisional government is created and co-rules with the Petrograd Soviet, a group of progressive elected workers and soldiers yielding much greater power than the provisional government. With the opportunity to bring peace and prosperity to Russia and end involvement in World War I, the new officials instead decide to honor Russia's agreement to its allies and remain in the war. With this fateful stroke, the Bolshevik Revolution commences. After seizing power, the Bolsheviks capture Anastasia and the rest of the Romanov family and hold them in captivity. Even amid danger, Anastasia's quick wit shines. She devises a plan to sew their family jewels into their clothing in order to hide them from their Bolshevik guards, a move that may safeguard their futures in more ways than one. Anastasia also manages to charm the guards, entertaining them with comedic miming and plays while keeping her family's spirits high in the face of peril. Outside captivity, a civil war rages on. The Bolsheviks, known as the Reds, defend the city of Yekaterinburg and the Romanov family against the Bolshevik opposition, known as the Whites. Outmanned and outgunned, the Reds sense imminent defeat. On July 17, 1918, Anastasia, her siblings, and their parents are ordered into the basement for a photograph to quell rumors of escape. They line up for the photo in two neat rows when suddenly, 12 armed Bolshevik guards burst in and unleash gunfire on the Romanov family. After the smoke clears, those still breathing are stabbed to death. After three centuries of imperial command, the Romanov family ceases to exist, unless a certain duchess, with unparalleled wit and charm, managed to escape inevitable demise. Immediately after the execution of the Romanov family, the leader of the Bolshevik secret police, Yakov Yurovsky, announces the death of Tsar Nicholas II. While transparent about Nicholas, the Bolsheviks are far more withholding about the fate of his family. They stage an elaborate and gruesome effort to hide the bodies by stripping them down, covering them in acid, and burying them in a mine. When researchers uncover the grave 60 years later, they expect to find seven Romanov bodies, accounting for the entire family. Instead, only five sets of remains are recovered, leaving two Russian royals unaccounted for. DNA testing of the discovered bodies confirms the identities of Tsar Nicholas II, his wife, and three of his children. But the youngest Romanov brother and one of his sisters are not among the buried. The burning of the bodies makes it nearly impossible to identify which of the sisters is missing. In 1989, Yurovsky publishes an official report about the Romanov execution, 
with tantalizing details to further stoke the possibility of Anastasia and her brother's survival. The jewels that Anastasia and her siblings sewed into their clothes to hide from the Bolsheviks caused the bullets to ricochet off the corsets of two or three of the Grand Duchesses. A small group of guards known to be sympathetic to the Duchesses did not participate in the murder and were reportedly left alone with the bodies for an extended period of time, allowing for the opportunity for any surviving Romanovs to escape. Throughout the 20th century, many women have come forward claiming to be the surviving heiress of the Romanov family's wealth, but only one is truly plausible. Anna Anderson. On February 6, 1928, Anderson arrives in New York City claiming that she managed to escape her assassins. She states that she feigned her death by laying in the pile of her family's bodies, then convinced a guard whom she befriended during captivity to carry her and her younger brother to safety. Anastasia's quick thinking and ability to charm make the possibility of her survival plausible and the compelling story of a charismatic duchess escaping the throes of certain demise permeates into pop culture. In 1956, Hollywood star Ingrid Bergman portrays Anastasia on the silver screen, earning her an Oscar and a Golden Globe for her depiction of the youngest Romanov sister. An animated musical follows in the 90s, joined by a Broadway adaptation years later. The mystery of Anastasia captivates people's imagination and optimism since the Russian Revolution in 1917. Ninety years later, technological innovation completes the missing piece to the puzzle. The scientific progress of DNA testing makes the mystery of Anastasia's escape a solvable one. In 1994, DNA samples of Anna Anderson's body conclusively show no relation to the Romanov family. But even if Anderson is an imposter, is the real Anastasia out there somewhere, along with her brother? In 2007, Russian builder Sergei Plotnikov leads a team of amateur historians on weekend searches for the bodies, intent on finding the missing Romanov remains. The group stumbles upon bone fragments of two bodies near the burial mine of the rest of the family. The bodies are later identified as the youngest Romanov brother and one of the duchesses. Because of the brutality of their execution, it's impossible to tell whether the newly discovered body is Anastasia's or one of her sisters. But with all seven Romanov remains now accounted for and identified through mitochondrial DNA testing, the possibility of Anastasia's escape comes to an end. The entire Romanov family had indeed been executed on that fateful night in Yekaterinburg, in the midst of the Russian Revolution. And this line always sang very cool and rang cool in my ear. The internet battles a little bit over this line. One fool was saying it was definitely about serial killer Charles Sobraj, who committed his first known murder in 1975, about seven years after Mick wrote this song. But most internet nerds think it's a reference to the Thuggy Gang. In the 1830s, a British official in India received a disturbing report. Over 100 human skulls had been found in a well in the town of Etwa. This looked suspiciously like the work of India's feared religious killers, the Thuggy. The English word thug gets its name from the Thuggy of India, and the word thug comes from the Sanskrit thaga, meaning to conceal or hide, a reference to the thieves' secretive, deceptive nature. 
These were thieves who robbed travellers and ritually murdered them as part of the worship of the Hindu goddess Kali. Kali, goddess of the Hindu cremation grounds, is often portrayed in a fearsome way, adding to the fear her followers inspired. They referred to her as the Black Mother, or Mother Kali, or Kali Ma. According to tradition, the thugs would kill travellers and leave their bodies for Kali to devour. The thug gangs would use initiation ceremonies where ritual foods were offered to Kali, and then the thugs would strike. The thugs believed the shovel they used to dig graves would sometimes come to life and point the way to their next killing. The thugs also exclusively used strangulation to kill their victims, partly due to a Hindu fear of contamination by shedding blood, and partly because local Indian laws technically only considered murder by the shedding of blood as a capital offence. Thug gangs would travel in large groups, often befriending travellers on the road to learn where they were from, and the thugs had ruthless tactics. They would only attack people far from their home state, as they knew such people would not be missed for some time, and so would not initially arouse alarm if they didn't return home. By the time the alarm was raised, the thugs would be long gone, having made a killing to Kali. Thugs also initially avoided killing the elderly, women or disabled, but this became harder, as the thug gangs greatly feared leaving members of travelling parties alive who might identify them later. To get around this, lower-ranking thug gang members were tasked with killing the people who fell into taboo categories to spare the gang leader's religious defilement. The thugs were running riot in the early 1800s. The British conquest of India had disrupted the local economy and eliminated local warlords who had previously patrolled roads. There was also jurisdictional issues, as thugs zigzagged in and out of territory controlled by the British East India Company to avoid detection and prevent British authorities from following them into native states. But one British officer decided it was time to crush the thugs, and his his name was William Sleeman. Sleeman had a deep love for the culture and people of India. He studied several Indian languages to fluency so he could hold conversations with ordinary Indians to find out their problems, and one of the main ones was the thugs. The local Indians told Sleeman they feared reporting thug murders as it attracted native police who were famously oafish and corrupt. Sleeman believed the thugs could and should be defeated, and Sleeman set to work. He began by ordering East India Company troops to seize any suspected thugs on the road. Once this was done, they were threatened unless they offered information, and with this information, Sleeman could build up an intelligence picture of the thug gangs. He then plotted the home villages of captured thugs on a map, and overlaid this map with maps showing thug murder sites. This allowed him to plot two things. Firstly, the home bases of the thugs, and secondly, which roads they hunted on. With this intelligence, he organised anti-thug patrols, who were often handsomely financially rewarded. As time progressed, the thugs began to lose confidence. They were being ruthlessly hunted, their gangs broken up, they constantly feared betrayal by other gang members, and the British authorities mercilessly pursued them. The British also deliberately refused to return captured thugs to home provinces, where they could easily bribe corrupt local judges. Instead, they were exclusively detained, charged, and sometimes executed in British jails. The thuggy would sometimes chant hymns of devotion to Kali as they would drop through the gallows trapdoor. As goddess of cremation grounds, the thuggy believed Kali would soon reincarnate them, but whatever became of them after death, their ability to harm ordinary Indians was no more. The thugs were being crushed, and to keep this going, the British established the Thuggy Daftar, a specific police office for detecting and punishing thugs that only disbanded in 1947 with India's independence from Britain. Some of the evidence Sleeman put together was so detailed it would even secure convictions in a modern court. So ended the threat of the thugs. For centuries, the thugs had killed around 40,000 people a year, but the British authorities had crushed them, although they may have been immortalised in movies such as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. The word thug has also entered the language, meaning violent gang behaviour. And whilst the thuggy of India are gone, they remain one of the most notorious and feared gangs of all time. We should probably just acknowledge that Mick is a pretty great lyricist, and this is just five years after the Beatles sung Love Me Do. 
And I think I've added this somewhere before in a previous episode, but I love hearing demos of songs that are burnt into my brain. And here's the demo for Sympathy for the Devil. who the Kennedys are or were. Here's another word that I know broadly, but while my brain is open, we'll do some deeper penetration. I rode a tank, held a generous rank, when the bliss creeks raged. Dunkirk. 1940. The British army is in ruins. Hundreds of thousands of men scramble to escape from France as the Luftwaffe swirls overhead. It is chaos. Just two weeks after Germany had launched their invasion of France, the writing was on the wall. Evacuation, the only chance of survival. The Germans had advanced with terrifying speed covering over 120 miles in just five days. The Allies' plans had unraveled before them at the hands of a numerically smaller enemy. Suddenly, a new word appeared in the British press. Blitzkrieg, lightning war. So what is Blitzkrieg and why was it so successful? The main principle of Blitzkrieg is to win by not fighting. That's John Delaney, head of the Second World War team at Imperial War Museum. Now, what he said might sound impossible, but in practice, it was very effective. You identify the weak point in the enemy's line, break through and cause disruption in the enemy's rear areas, so you defeat them by dislocation, not destruction on the battlefield. Despite their inferior numbers, Blitzkrieg made it possible for Germany to rapidly defeat its foes and achieve victories that were inconceivable just weeks before.
Black Shark is also known as Old Shark, Old Shock, or just plain Shark. And it's also a Kicking Darkness song, and it's track one of their first album, Permission to Land. explain a bit about this mythical creature, especially in the very Justin Hawkins way. His eyes, numbered but one. Shuck? Yes, I see him. I said, say, about 30 years ago. What a wonderful night it was. I always remember the moon was at its fullest. In fact, I'd never seen such a beautiful night. And as I was pushing the old bike, I heard these rattling of these chains. And I thought to myself, oh, well, that's nothing. That's just a matter of a, a horse strand off the marshes. That kept coming nearer and nearer. Local people still talk about the black dog and there are very regularly eyewitness reports cropping up. And I thought, well, I'd better stop here and let it pass. And it was passed me as a form as a great big black shaggy dog. And do you know what? There was a gate dead opposite and that passed through this gate. Well, when I got to the gate, that never had been opened. It's not just a fusty old legend dating back to the 16th century. This tale begins in 1577, and deep in the heart of eastern England, a hellish monster appeared one day, outside Blytheborough Church, amidst the mightiest of storms. Closer and closer, it got to the door, while a large congregation sat pensively inside. With a huge clap of thunder, the church doors burst open, and the ghostly black dog made its deadly entrance. Crashing through the building, this hound from hell sent parishioners scattering, killing two, and toppling the steeple through the church roof. The dog's parting gift were scorched claw marks in the church door, and they remain to this day. The Black Dog story has become a very popular legend and narrative here that's almost certainly been passed down by word of mouth. I quite often give lectures to educational groups and to the local school, and a few years ago I had a group from primary school here, these were six or seven year olds, and at the end, because they were very quiet and looked rather frightened, I said, 
Um, well, it all happened a long time ago, and I don't suppose the black dog ev is ever around now. And at that point, a little girl stuck up her hands and said, please, sir, he is, sir, my granny's seen him. And then a, a boy stuck up his hand and said, yes, my brother's seen him too, sir. So it, for them, it is something very realistic because they've heard about it from their own people within their own community. So I said to the villagers the next night when I got there, the whole story, and they said, well, that's nothing. That's what they call old Shuck. He roamed these roads pretty frequently. He's been seen many a time. But I said, I'd never see anything like that before. enough learning for my little brain for today. Let's quickly recap. Recapping the magic. So we learned Kalitas is a plant. We learn about the mission bells. We learn about I Ching. We learned that I'm subtly racist. We learned about the Bathurst riots, Walter Rally pilot. We learned that I'm probably more racist than I thought. Anastasia, the Thuggy Gang, Blitzkrieg, and the Black Shark. Anyway, that was a bit of fun, racking my little brain for songs with things I don't know and digging a bit deeper. And it would make me smile if at some point you were screaming in your head, I can't believe this peanut needed to Google that. But we know what we know. I'm happy to learn new stuff. Anyway, thanks as always for listening. And if you'd like to pay me, you can just tell a friend about the podcast or not. Do as you please. Apologies for all my Asian racism. And I might return soon with another Things I Don't Know episode, but I'll definitely be back with a semi-normal episode soon for your ear holes. Thanks again. See ya. Press the button, you donut. I can't hear you. It's Clint Fandango, can you hear me? Yeah, obviously, if you press the button.